Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 263, A Delicate Balance. I'm Pat Ryan. On this podcast, we talk with scientists, engineers, astronauts, and other folks about their part in America's space exploration program. And today it's scientists as we get into the details of what being in space does to your puny human body. The most obvious consequence of your being off of the Earth and in the reduced gravity environment of space is as plain as can be. You float. Speaking for myself, and I think most of the rest of us, that would be outstanding. But beyond the gee whizness of you floating, and also past the concerns surrounding, well, how do I work when everything else is floating too, there is another concern that is both immediate and long-term. And that is, what effects does reduced gravity have on your body, on your health, right now and potentially down the road? Since even before the first American flew in space more than 60 years ago, scientists have been working to answer those questions and to develop countermeasures to those deleterious effects so men and women in space will be able to do work. Today, we're going to talk about that with two NASA scientists at the forefront of the research into the effort to make space safer for the humans who go there. Dr. Scott Wood is the Neuroscience Laboratory Manager at the Johnson Space Center and the lead scientist in the sensory motor science discipline. He earned his doctorate in the Department of Otolaryngology at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and has participated in flight investigations since joining the Neuroscience Laboratory in the 1980s. He now serves as a subject matter expert for NASA's Human Research Program and the Crew Health Countermeasures Team. Also with us today is Dr. Mil Reschke, recently retired from the neuroscience laboratories at JSC after a NASA career that began in 1972. Think Apollo astronauts. He earned his doctorate in sensory physiology, psychophysics, and vestibular and audio function. And his NASA work has centered on, well, actually it continues to focus on because he's still working, even though he retired. He's focused on changes to the human sensory motor system during and after exposure to long-duration spaceflight, as well as the development of countermeasures to be used on future such missions, including the ones to Mars. The Sensory Motor Guidelines for Future Exploration. Here we go. I'm not sure who was the first person to recognize that there was no gravity in space and that the conditions there weren't necessarily ideal for human beings whose bodies evolved to live in this perfect pull of gravity that we've all known all of our lives. But while the United States and the Soviet Union and Russia and other nations of the world have been putting people on rockets and sending them out to space, they've also been working to understand how the conditions in space affect people and what we can do about that. So I'd like to start by getting into some of the details of those effects. Scott, what effect does the lack of, for lack of a better term, normal gravity, our normal gravity, what is the lack of it? What is the effect that it has on human beings in space? 
So that's a great question. It, it really uh, affects a lot of different systems. There is uh, uh, some deconditioning that occurs in the musculoskeletal areas. Uh, the cardiovascular system deals with uh, the, the shifting of fluids that that goes headward. Um, our our interest uh, in the neuroscience lab has been really focused on what this means in terms of your body's uh, ability to orientate yourself, sense motion, and control motion. So we have some specialized gravity receptors in our inner ear hmm. that detect your normally detect your orientation relative relative to gravity. And so when you're in weightlessness, there's they're providing a different signal. So the brain has to recalibrate what information it's getting from those sensors. Is it a different signal or the lack of a signal? It's it can be a different signal. Okay. You could you could think of it that way because you're still moving about, you're still accelerating. It's just the cues that you're getting are different and especially the way you combine cues from the different sensory systems like vision and your ability to interact with your support surfaces is completely different. You're not having to uh, offset the the weight of your limbs as you reach for things and as you move your legs. So just the way you interact with your environment is completely changed. Is it, That would have a tremendous impact on in, doing any kind of task, wouldn't it, Mill? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, 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 the issue that you know, we struggle with in trying to do this kind of research is removing gravity before they ever fly in, into space. And one of the tools that we have and uh, that we brought back to NASA early was parabolic flight. Right. And it, that's the first experience that most people have um, with removing gravity and having to interact with the, the situation that you are going to occur in in spaceflight itself. Well, you're, we talk in training astronauts, we try to create the conditions that they will encounter. But what you're saying is that gravity is such a condition that it's damn near impossible for us to, to remove it, to let people see what that's like, right? I, explain how the parabolic flights uh, mimic that uh, that condition well most people think that the airplane just dives it, it doesn't it uh, it does in fact dive uh, uh, rather dramatically and then pulls up and it's the pull-up uh, when you reach a, a gravitational state of, of zero for a period depending on on the velocity of the airplane it can last anywhere from 20 to 30 seconds. Uh, do that over and over again for as as many as 60 parabolas. And uh, it's uh, it's very interesting to watch people that are <laughs> are are uh, experiencing it for the first time. Now that's 20 or 20 or 30 seconds at a time, but when you do it 60 times that's not all consecutive, right? There's you. You feel gravity again in between them. Yeah, yeah. The, 
Yeah, generally, depending on the amount of time that you spend in in a weightless state uh, on a parabolic flight, um, is is related to the amount of gravity that you have to pull. So the higher the gravity during the initial pull-up is uh, going to be range anywhere from two and a half to to three g. Let me back us up a bit here. When did NASA start investigating how weightlessness impacted the sensory motor functions? I don't think when NASA began to to first uh, consider putting people into space that uh, weightlessness was really a big consideration. Mm -hmm. And uh, it only became more of an issue throughout the, the... the later Apollo flights, and certainly the the uh, Skylab missions, the shuttle flights, and then as duration increased in terms of uh, how long they were going to remain in a weightless environment, uh, NASA did realize that we had a problem, mm-hmm. and uh, the problem was. How do we essentially condition people to fly in a weightless environment for a long period of time? The answer to that is we really don't. Yeah. Uh, it's because we can't mimic the condition for them right. long enough. Yeah. You're, you're basically the only kind of tool that you have that uh, allows you to, to do that is parabolic flight. And NASA canceled its parabolic flight program several years ago. Right. Let's stay back in the past first. Uh, Mill, tell me how you got interested in uh, and involved in this research in the first place. Well, it, it all started in graduate school. Yeah. Uh, I had a very good professor uh, who had, in fact, uh, uh, done a considerable amount of work at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And uh, I became his student and uh, did work at Wright-Patterson with him. Uh, that's first time I met an astronaut was at Wright-Patterson. Uh, when was that? Yeah. When was that? Oh, gosh. That, <laughs> I've been at NASA for 50 years. Right. Um, that was uh, way before that. Mm-hmm. The nineteen late nineteen sixties. Nineteen sixties. And how did you get from that situation to coming to work at NASA? It it was an accident. <laughs> uh, I I had graduated and uh, from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and uh, was just looking for a job. I got a teaching position at. Uh, Franklin Pierce University in New Hampshire. Um, I was never a teacher. And uh, fortunately, after about a year, or less than a year, actually it was one semester at at Franklin Pierce, I got a call from NASA saying, uh, uh, send us a resume. We'd like to uh, uh, maybe give you a job. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was in 1972. And what was that first job? First job was 
really just following people around and <laughs> and and looking we actually that those were the the Apollo flights uh, and uh, we were beginning to test people their balance before flight and after flight as well as looking at vestibular function in more generalized clinical ways and uh basically that was how i started the laboratory here that i had when i when i first began to work was dedicated more to sleep and uh, some other brain functions the the primary equipment that was available at that time was a bed <laughs> and uh high tech uh, yeah and a soundproof room outstanding scott while we're on the subject, tell me about your educational background and how you ended up here in so, labs that had more than just beds. <laughs> That's right. I came at the beginning of the shuttle program or early in the shuttle program when uh, motion sickness was um, starting to become more of a concern uh, with these shorter flights. And so I joined Mill. Actually, I worked for Mill, and he mentored me in my early career uh, between undergraduate and graduate school. So I just uh, really fell in love with the subject matter and uh, wanted to do more. And so I, I pursued a, my doctorate degree at Baylor College of Medicine so I could remain affiliated with the lab. I, I've departed on occasion. I, I went and worked for a little bit at a, a nonprofit hospital in Portland, Oregon and in the same field and uh, look, looking at vestibular disorders. I worked with the Navy in Pensacola, Florida, where some of this early space research was done. Um, so I got to be part of uh, some of the work they were doing in military uh, aviation world. Did a stint in academia, but I, I keep coming back <laughs> <laughs> to the lab here. There's and an attraction. Very, there is an attraction, and it's just a very fascinating area. We were starting to touch on the beginnings of, the, of this research Take us back to that point. Tell me, how did how were some of the first ways in which NASA began to study how astronauts were affected by the lack of gravity? Well, that's that's a hard question. Uh, it, I think that that what was observed was that as the flights became longer and longer, it was apparent that returning back to Earth. Uh, was not simply a process of walking out of the spacecraft and uh, uh, continuing to go about your daily mm -hmm. business. It, uh, it, we were seeing difficulty in walking, difficulty in uh, situations where vision wasn't uh, available to the, the returning astronauts. Where vision wasn't available? Yeah, well, when uh, you get into a darkness oh, okay. or a situation like that, uh, you rely in those kinds of conditions on your vestibular system in many, in, in many cases. To understand which way's up. Yeah. Among other Which things. way is up? Which way am I turning? You mm -hmm. know, why do I feel dizzy when I turn my head to the right or left or look up or look down? Uh, I'm losing my balance. Uh, what do I do? 
And at that time, we're starting to see more astronauts who are experiencing more difficulty than prior astronauts had. Yeah, it's a it's a, a matter of how long you spend in a weightless state in terms of the duration that you're going to see in, in terms of uh, uh, vestibular function returning to a normal Earth environment. What's the thought about why that is? I, I not having done any of this research, of course, myself, uh, I can see how not having the cues of gravity would impact you, but I, apparently it continues the longer you don't have that that uh, that effect, that impact. Uh, do we know why that is? Does your body forget, or, or, or what is it? I don't know if the body forgets it, but the body's has to to reacclimate to the environment where it's a normal gravity. Mm -hmm. I've heard astronauts who've been in space say that once they get there and they become acclimated to the lack of gravity, that they function perfectly fine. But when they return to Earth, they you know their their body then encounters it again. Both of those things sound to me like the body's doing a terrific job of adapting to the circumstance it finds itself in. And that's the point that, you know, there's a, there's a, the most profound effects from some of this adaptation occurs very early. That's when people experience motion sickness. But as you point out, after a few uh, days to weeks, uh, that effect is lessened and people adapt to that new environment. There is uh, some period of time that there's a slower adjustment just to being able to um, be more proficient with the way you move and things like that. You can tell a difference between crew members that have been in space for a few months, for example, versus a rookie crew member uh -huh. that just arrived. And they can tell a difference that they'll describe that um, sensation that they're, they're realizing that they're able to move more efficiently. But, um, yeah, yeah, I think that you're right. The body's doing a wonderful job adapting, but all that adaptation for moving efficiently in microgravity is not necessarily helping you when you have to, when you, re, when you reenter a, a partial or, or a full gravity, Earth's gravity, um, or because the brain, a different the brain, gravity the environment. Brain, that's correct. The brain has to, again, reset, recalibrate what information it's getting from those sensory systems. And it's an integration of all the different sensory information that and, you have. And, and you both have, have touched on this. The, the point is that the brain is using the, the, uh, in, it's what it understands about the environment that you're in to allow you to function and it is it it is smart enough to be able to know things are different, so I have to act differently. Is that is that a, an awful way to explain it? No, I th uh, I think that's a really good way. Uh, so actually, part of what we also observe is um, that process of adaptation is dependent on how you move when you get into that environment. So there are certain things when you're reintroduced to Earth's gravity that you probably want to avoid doing, like making large head movements relative to gravity. That can be pretty provocative. Uh -huh. And you discover that pretty quickly. And so there's some... Provocative meaning... Um, 
evoking motion sickness, yeah, okay. <laughs> leading to vomiting. Yeah. Yes, yes. So there are certain movements that people will try to avoid when they're going through that early parts of the adaptation. And so part of what we're researching is really looking at how we can help crew members go through this period um, be more efficient in terms of incrementally exposing themselves and adapting to that new environment. Um, because there are smart and not so smart ways to uh, reintroduce yourself to this gravity environment and, and hasten that adaptation. Well, let's, let's exp expound on that for a minute. What, what ways did we years ago try to uh, allow people to uh, read, readapt that, we found that worked and that didn't work? Well, I think in terms of the readaptation, uh, exercise programs have always been one of the primary tools. Uh, that's not necessarily in our field, but it does, um, it does force people to move. And the more you move, the quicker you're going to be adapted to that environment. Are you thinking about exercise while still in space or after you've returned? Prim primarily after you return. Okay. Exercise in space can actually be uh, detrimental to the vestibular system that you're, that you're going to experience the movement. Uh, it's beneficial in helping you to adapt to that environment just like it is when you return to, to Earth. And I guess the exercise is good in, in, uh, in, in allowing your muscles to keep working in that environment, but you're saying it, it's not helping your sensory motor system. No, no. Uh, as a matter of fact, the vestibular system has a profound effect on the, on the sensory or the, or the postural muscles, the, the muscles particularly in the lower part of your leg. Yeah. Tell me, how, how so? Well, it's a direct connection from the vestibular down to those muscles through the brainstem. And uh, it, if the vestibular system is, is not functioning the way you would like for it to function in a particular environment, it will definitely have an impact on the way those muscles respond when you try to move. Most people don't... It's it's very difficult to, to explain to people what the vestibular system does, but uh, give it a, give it a be, shot because uh, there's very few examples for sitting here around a table or moving anywhere. You don't know about the vestibular system. It's very silent. It works very very silently. Uh, only when something goes wrong with it are you aware that there's something that is happening that is not beneficial for me. When you become ill in some way. Yeah, when there's some... And you, you lose your balance. Trauma or disease that affects the vestibular system. Um, I, most people don't even realize that they have this system. It works very well. Uh, I usually use an example of people seeing the vestibular system in action is I have them hold their hand out in front of their face by about a foot or so and to, to uh, shake their head 
uh, back and forth at about one one cycle per second, and look at the lines in the palm of your hand. Now that that activates the semicircular canals, the the part of the vestibular system that essentially responds to angular acceleration. Okay, but after you've done that, then shake your hand back and forth, and the palm of your hand is blurry. And that's because the vestibular system is making the eyes move and remain stabilized in, in, in space. Okay. So that's a way to learn something about the vestibular system because it's very quiet. And like I say, you don't know that anything, is, you have a vestibular system for most people until there's a disease process or some other uh, thing has caused the vestibular system to not function properly. Can you describe where in us the, the organs of the vestibular system are, and give, which what I think will give me a sense of how they would be impacted by the lack of gravity? You, we've started in the ear, right? That's, uh, the, the, you have, the ear has two major, well, three major organs. Uh, the uh, auditory function and the vestibular. And uh, the vestibular system is comprised of, of a, uh, for simplicity's sake, uh, Please. <laughs> uh, uh, a system that responds to angular acceleration and a system that responds to linear. Um, and, forward or side to side. Right. Okay. Or up and down. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So knowing, I, I'm trying to think of an example. Anybody who's ridden a roller coaster, I, I'm thinking, probably has some experience of how their relationship to their environment changes based on the fact that their body is in a different situation. Is that, is that a good start, Scott? Yeah, and our our inner ear function, our vestibular function is adapted to kind of normal movements. So as you point out, when you get in something maybe a little different than you're normally used to experiencing, like a roller coaster, or some of us have played this game where you uh, spin around in circles with your head on a baseball bat, and then you try to run <laughs> <laughs> a straight line or something like that. Uh, that's not the way we normally move. So, uh, and, and the vestibular system uh, provides some signals that make that challenging, that test mm-hmm. challenging. I want to get back to something that Mill did say, sure. though, about uh, exercise, because we have... Uh, seen that some of the advanced exercise programs that we have on ISS do help you in the process of recovering so that maintaining that muscle uh, conditioning and and there's some conditioning in terms of the sense uh, sense of joint position and things like that can can be uh, helped by that in-flight exercise. Our challenge now as we move to exploration, we won't have the space that we have on ISS for this wonderful gym Uh with advanced uh, aerobic and resistive exercises. Uh, We need to be able to downsize that. And that's, that's, I think, going to be a very big challenge for us. How can we maintain that conditioning on these 
long duration space flights. Right. The International Space Station has a a, a whole module that is is filled with some pretty remarkable exercise equipment that you don't have room for inside an Orion capsule. That is or, correct. Or, uh, but I guess we could plan to build it on uh, lunar outposts. Uh, that we would have more stuff that we could uh, put into bigger, uh, bigger rooms. Yeah, this is a challenge for us. How 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 much do we really need? Uh, you know, what what are the critical components? How can we make it more efficient? And for us also, then once you arrive, what what can you do to assess um, the individual in terms of helping make sure that they are in a good condition to go do the tasks that we have them to do. One of the things that we haven't touched on is that there's a, a wide variability in responses among crew members, just like there are in those of us that ride those roller coasters. <laughs> some of us enjoy them and some of us not so much. So um, we have folks that are more impacted than others in terms of what motion sickness symptoms they experience or how long it takes them to recover. And so that's part of our challenge too, is how can we provide the tools uh, just to be smart about making decisions about when people are ready to perform different tasks? How can we structure tasks so that people are set up for success? What aids can we provide that enable that successful performance? And you're talking about performing those tasks while still in the space environment. Or in a partial G environment, for example, landing the vehicle or getting out of the vehicle or mm -hmm. doing some of the early EVA tests. And your point a moment ago is really that not all astronauts are created equal. Given the same set of circumstances, one astronaut may respond in to one degree and a, another astronaut in the same circumstances would respond differently, uh, better or worse, but it's variable. It, it's not all the same for everybody if, if you've been gone for five days or five months. Is that right? That is yeah. correct. Yeah. You were about to say something, weren't you? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no Scott covered that really well. The... Do you find that there's a, a a relationship between how long an astronaut is in this environment and how much of an effect it has? Or as, to use your example of no all astronauts not being created equal, that it it's a function of the individual rather than the amount of time? There's definitely effective duration, as Mel was pointing out. We know... Um, you know, if you think about the Apollo mission, for example, um, we had four and a half day transit to that lunar surface. So that wasn't a, a very long time in which they adapted to that microgravity environment. So that was analogous to some of our early shuttle flights. Mm -hmm. um, but the shuttle flights went up to 18 days in duration. And as those shuttle flights became longer, and as we had other long duration experience with Skylab and on, of course now on ISS, we have definitely seen a difference. Uh, we have some plans within the human research program to actually look at these uh, 
responses over longer periods of time, like with one-year missions. Right. Um, so this is really critical for us to understand that effect of duration because it's going to be a longer transit to get to a Mars surface. And so one of the design reference missions we're looking at for Artemis is keeping people on the gateway for a period of time so that we can mimic some of those longer transit times before they come to the lunar surface and we could evaluate what we need to do to protect crew health during those longer transits. So that's a really important part of the program looking towards Mars and preparing that Mars architecture for success. And and I'm, I'm you correct me if I'm wrong, but this touches on the the research in a white paper that you guys shared with us about the studies that you're doing, not only of how astronauts are affected in the space environment, but how they're affected in a partial gravity and then a full gravity environment again, because we are sending them on a mission where they may encounter all of those different variables, but we still want them to do work at all the different stages. And we need to be able to know how to help them still be in a condition to do that work. Is that is that a, a summary of it? Yeah, yeah there are um, knowing what challenges crew members are, are going to have, and we've been studying that and we continue to study that. There are a number of things that we can do to help them in that state. We can be smart about how we're planning these EVAs so we can put things that are maybe more challenging a little bit later and try some of the more simple EVAs up front. We, we can give them tools that help assess their ability to do the task, give them tools that help them be able to enhance their recovery. And of course, as we look towards exploration, um, we have a lot of people helping returning crews right now when they come back from ISS. There's a lot of resources that we can bring to bear to, to even help them in the recovery process coming out of the capsule and so forth. Right, but we need right. to think more autonomously as we think about uh, going back to the moon and on, and on to Mars. We have to come up with self-administered tools that they can do and, and, and help enhance that recovery. The ways they can take care of themselves and each other. That's correct. Because they're going places where there aren't rescue uh, recovery crews to help them. That's right. Uh, give me a, a, a summary of, of how your research is, is, is pointing. What, what are you finding about how people are impacted and, and how, uh, I guess I don't know the right way to ask this question, of, of what we can do to, to help make sure that they are in a condition to to take care of themselves and to, to do their work uh, at those various stages of a mission. I, I would like to say, just to, to, to introduce your— Sorry, I didn't mean your, to look at that. <laughs> well, to, at just you. to introduce your—to address that question, I think Dr. Reshke has actually led one of the real pivotal— pivotal pivotal science experiments that addresses this uh, the decrements that people have in that recovery process so mm -hmm. he he uh, pioneered a, a study that was a collaboration with our col uh, colleagues from Russia and we were going out to the uh, landing places in Kazakhstan and partnering with our 
medical professionals. They right. were a great asset, and of course the crew to support these experiments and participate in them. So while they're just moments after being extracted from the castle and uh, the capsule and carried to the the tent. Uh, Dr. Eschke was in the tent, not in the tent himself, <laughs> but he was he was uh, behind the studies that we were doing early post mission. So this is this was really critical for us to get um, a good characterization of what those decrements were, and and what we needed to be mindful of as we kind of go forward for exploration. So having said that, I'll I'll turn it over to Dr. Thank Eschke. You. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure where to go from that, but uh, uh, what we were doing in terms of testing crew members returning uh, as, as soon as they, they could be taken from the space capsule was to, to make the testing that we were going to do essentially un, unavailable to anyone to watch. So... The, the Russians were very helpful in that, uh, providing the, the, the tent. The tent. Mm -hmm. we, we we owned the tent, mm -hmm. and uh, that meant that even the Russian generals weren't going to come in there and watch. <laughs> and uh, we did simple, very simple testing. Uh, can you sit, stand up from a seated position? And what happens when you do that? Uh, can you walk heel to toe, for example? Can you get up from the ground after you've lain in that position for several minutes? And what does it take to stand up? Uh, very simple things like that. Turning a corner. Walk and turn a corner. They do sound very simple. They, they are very, very simple and very, very challenging. They are. Yep. Very challenging. Uh, it, it's it's interesting to watch the progression of the recovery, which we were able to do, particularly since we were we begin testing in the field uh, immediately after landing, and then with the, on the U.S. side uh, testing again during the refill during the the period of time when. The, plane was returning and being refueled in Europe. Bringing astronauts from Kazakhstan all the way back to Houston right. during and that period. So we tested again a few hours later in Europe, and then uh, we tested again when they returned uh, to the U.S. And uh, that was generally just a little under 24 hours right. that the last test was done. And then we tested every day. Uh, as much as we could over a period of time until recovery was looked like it was fairly complete. Is it a a kind of a template of how people recover in that way, or is it again you, your mileage may vary depending on your astronaut? Well, it depended on on the crew, specific crew member yeah. in terms of how fast they could recover. Uh, I think that the, what we've seen over the years is that uh, the longer you're in, in space, the longer the recovery time is going to be. Okay. Um, Apollo astronauts recovered very quickly, typically. And uh, uh, the shuttle astronauts uh, recovered 
almost like the Apollo astronauts. Within a, a day or two, they most of them were were functional. Uh, and, but uh, then when we transitioned into the space station in longer and longer durations, what you see typically is a period of time of uh, six months is a break point. A meaning... Meaning that six uh, months until they're functioning normally. Uh, no, meaning no. that if you've been in space for six months, uh, you're probably going to be become having more difficulty from a vestibular sensory motor point of view. Um, and those periods lasting a year uh, take the longest time to recover. Almost a direct relationship. But the but the recovery. Depends on what you're asking them to do. So if it's the simple tests like standing up, uh, that is a fairly quick recovery. If you have a more involved task that involves some going around obstacles and turning corners, we, we like to do the um, tandem walk. You know, you could think of the by the roadside uh Drunk test. Oh, okay. Hopefully you've never experienced I've this. I've seen it on television. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, but, you know, something challenging like that, and especially if we have them close their eyes, as Mel was mentioning earlier, with, with your eyes closed, you have more reliance on the inner ear to help you with your orientation. So if we put people in those conditions, the performance takes a little longer to recover on those tasks. So, and that informs us in terms of when we think about tasks that we're going to ask crew members to do during EVA, early EVAs. We, we need to be strategic about what aids we give them uh, to help them do their task as we watch uh, and, and observe their recovery and to the, to the new environment. Yeah, the EVAs, that's an, that's an interesting point. EVAs are typically not permitted until three days in a weightless environment, primarily because of the potential of uh, vomiting. Right. And if you're in a spacesuit and vomit, uh, there is a fairly large chance that you're going to aspirate some of that vomitus and die. Yeah. Uh yeah, clearly not a, a condition that you want to you want to do everything to prevent. Yeah, that's probably more than I should have said, but it's, it's well, it's let me the, let me ask. There this. are limitations. Yeah, as you were describing it, and it seemed like a direct relationship. Between the longer you had been in space, the longer it took for you to to recover. It occurred to me to ask if uh, if you're going from a microgravity environment, say in transit to Mars, and then you're in a partial gravity environment on Mars, do you recover enough to work in that environment as opposed to needing to recover to work in a one-gravity environment of Earth? Does, does, that, does that direct relationship between the level of gravity uh, also translate into the time it takes to recover your ability to do what you want to do? We don't know. The only only model we have is, uh, you know, the time spent on the lunar surface. Right. And those were very brief stints. Uh, we've never had the chance to look at anybody 
returning after they've spent a great deal of time in a partial gravity. Yeah, never more than a couple of weeks, less than that. Potentially, the effect will be less dramatic in terms of, of return after you've spent a lot of time on, like Mars, surface of Mars, or even the moon. But uh, we don't know what it would look like in terms of the recovery curves. What have we learned to do to help astronauts counteract the effects of reduced gravity so far? So I think there are a, a number of things that we look at doing in terms of we we alluded to this earlier, just procedures. We we know that we can um, address what is asked of crew during these critical times of early adaptation, reduce some of the activities, uh, simplify some of what crews are being asked to do. Um, there are a number of um, engineering type solutions in terms of uh, handholds, uh, mobility aids, and things like that that we can look at doing to make uh, the risk of impairment less to help them be able to do their tasks. Certainly, we're, we're doing some work with the ability of crews to take over an automated landing, for example, and, and do that successfully in terms of providing the right training, the right um, displays, um, all of those things. Um, certainly, there's um, different um, procedural things, you know, we can do in in terms of having um, the, the the task workload among crew members and being able to help each other and and, and manage some of that. That was, a, I think, a real good example, too. You're talking about astronauts piloting a, a spacecraft to land on the moon or, or wherever. Uh, this could be a, a task that, that befalls to somebody who's been impacted by being in a microgravity environment for months. And we know from the research that we've talked about here that their abilities to function may be reduced to some level from what they were before they started. And now they're asked to do a really difficult and delicate task. Uh, and we have to find some way to make sure that they're capable. Well, you know, in uh, th throughout the course of NASA putting people into space and, and landing, uh, we typically always had the capability of an automated landing. Uh, it's been rarely ever used. Mm -hmm. An astronaut's an astronaut. They, they're going to want to, to fly the vehicle. They, they have no problem with grabbing the stick. Right. And so it's, it's I suspect that uh, in the future, nothing is going to change that. That, uh, but, but these landings were successful largely because of how we trained the crews and we trained them very well. We trained them mm -hmm. with a variety of different platforms. They had fixed base simulators. They had in-flight trainers. We had that for both Apollo and for shuttle. 
Um, as the duration started um, becoming longer for shuttle, the crews were also using some onboard trainers right, to kind of maintain right. proficiency. So the the key is to have that training level up so that if you do have that disruption, uh, you're more prone to, for example, having disorientation or just some challenges with that cognitive workload as you're going through that adaptation, you, you'll be able to handle that task. The fact is we're aware of what the human astronauts' conditions might be, and so we've built the mission to, to be able to, to help them. That's right. You know, it's just simple things like making sure the displays are situated so they don't have to move their head a lot. You know, having a having a handheld handhold right below a display that they have to interact with, so they're not having to reach out and touch without. You know, they have a way to stabilize mm-hmm. their hands. So, what we know from the deconditioning, we can begin to start look uh, talking Fold to our it providers. Back into the design and, of exactly, and you know, how can we design things to maximize success? How do we, what what Skill sets do we need to train crews to? What what resources do we need to be able to stand up so that folks are adequately trained and, and confident in what they're doing? Are those kind of things happening in designing Artemis missions now? They are. They are. We are uh, actually working with our um, flight operations team and um, within the research team to try to be very synergistic in terms of raising up some motion simulator platforms that we could look at some of these uh, countermeasures like training countermeasures um, and things like that. So there's there's a lot of exciting work to be done Mm -hmm. as we approach these missions, especially as we think about these missions with the longer transits before they do land on the moon. So. So are there features being worked for for these future spaceships that are going to go to Mars or the the habitats or the space suits that the astronauts would wear that would help them in these different environments on the moon and on Mars? A yes to all of the above. We, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have qu- quite a bit of work in a variety of different platforms. We have people researching and looking at the operational impacts of those areas. So for uh, the training aspects, for example, for um, what you need to be able to do to land a vehicle on the the lunar surface, there are folks that are looking very critically at what are those skills that we need to have uh, training address and what types of platforms we need. And so even before the providers are ready to to do that, people at NASA are looking at what, you know, raising up those capabilities so that we can provide some generic training that would be helpful no matter what provider is is coming up with the vehicle or what they're asking the crews to do. But then also having a, a platform that then the commercial providers can also take mm-hmm. advantage of to provide the more mission-specific training that, that we need the crews to have for their vehicle. And it's not just NASA astronauts that will feel the effects of the environment. The private astronauts would, too. Mm-hmm. And, They're also and we'll have di- <laughs> different providers, so we'll need to have a platform that that different providers can be able to leverage to 
mm-hmm. to provide that training. What's next for neuroscientists at NASA? What other areas related to this are you guys working on or think ought to be worked on? Well, there are several that will probably never happen. Oh. Um, Artificial gravity in flight. Right. I think would be probably one of the biggest steps we could take. Making that happen is probably going to be very, very difficult. In the past, there have been several designs. Uh, None of it seems to be ever going to be implemented, however. Because it's not feasible or it's not... Uh, It's it's feasible. Too expensive or... It's feasible. It's probably very expensive. Okay. But... uh, uh, maintaining a relationship to a gravitational field other than uh, total microgravity is uh, one of, probably one of the best things we could do. Uh, depends on the kind of ship you have, you know, what we're talking about now in terms of the uh, vehicles uh, in, in design and in use. Um, there's no way to really provide any kind of artificial gravity in flight. Does it involve rotation of the vehicle? It involves rotation of the vehicle, and it, it, it has several problems that sort of trickle down through all the other sciences. Um, if you provide uh, rotation of the entire spacecraft, uh, you're going to upset a lot of people. Uh, people that uh, have experiments that require a almost total vibration-free environment. Right, right. um, It's going to vibrate. There's there's no doubt about it. And uh, having a vibrating or non-vibrating environment uh, requires a vehicle that uh, can maybe separate. And where you can have a daily dose of uh, of artificial gravity. Hmm. Uh, there are other problems associated with artificial gravity, and that is the vestibular system doesn't really appreciate being uh, exposed to cross-coupled angular accelerations. Cross what kind? Cross-coupled. Cross-coupled <laughs> yeah. angular accelerations, yeah. okay? Yeah. Uh, so uh, making the, the environment such that you can minimize that is going to require less movement on the part of the person. Uh, hopefully, you'll be able to walk and run. Uh, Skylab right. was Thinking of the same a thing. good example. Uh, the upper deck was fairly empty. It had uh, water containers around the, uh, uh, the the vehicle, and crew members had started running on those uh, water containers. Big circle. Yeah, they did very well. Yeah, so it's it's certainly feasible, but it's. It's all very 
interesting to think about when you when you get people who are smart enough to know the actual details of the things that have to be considered in order to make the whole thing work. It's just just fascinating. Yeah, it, it all all sort of uh, filters down. Bill Reschke and Scott Wood, I appreciate your uh, taking the time to talk about this. I I love it. It was great. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Before the first people ever left this planet on top of a rocket, the scientific concerns about how the space environment might impact those people were very broad ones, like, will they be able to breathe or swallow? Will they be able to do any work? Could they survive the radiation? Well, over the years, scientists have learned so much about how the lack of gravity and the other characteristics of the space environment impact the operation of this human machine and about how the body and mind react to the changing conditions in the short term while filing away data on the experience to be ready to respond when the circumstances return. The work of those researchers, men and women like Scott Wood and Mil Reschke, will be crucial to our eventual success in putting people on the moon and Mars for longer periods of time to explore those new horizons. I want to remind you that you can go online to keep up with all things NASA at nasa.gov. In fact, you can get all the NASA news you want delivered to you every week. Just go to nasa.gov slash subscribe to sign up for the NASA newsletter. You can find the full category of all our podcast episodes by going to nasa.gov slash podcasts and scrolling to our name. You can find all the other NASA podcasts right there at the same spot where you can find us, nasa.gov slash podcasts. Very convenient. This episode was recorded on August 19th, 2022. Thanks to Will Flato, Gary Jordan, Heidi LaBelle, Belinda Polito, and Jaden Jennings for their help with the production, and Scott Wood and Mill Reschke for helping us understand the issue and what's being done to address it. We'll be back next week.